Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Um, our episode right now, number 326. <clears throat> We're going to be talking uh, again on the same theme as develop, development of woodwork and wood furniture and the woodworker um, in the world, primarily starting in England. And that's where we've traced it back to. So, so we're at the point now of talking about walnut furniture of the 17th century. The introduction of a new wood must be an event of the highest importance in the history of a nation's furniture, especially if it has a strong tendency to modify not only design, but constructive methods as well. The replacement of oak by walnut as the fashionable timber for furniture, which may be said to coincide with the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, actually revolutionized both design and processes. It is probable that chair-making and cabinet work had become distinct and separate trades earlier in the 17th century. It is certain that this disparate character existed shortly after 1660, and that both processes and designing differ in many respects with the chairmaker from those usual with the cabinet maker. One striking distinction is that the former uses the new wood in the solid, sometimes which the latter seldom does, if ever. Walnut furniture, with the exception of chairs and kindred pieces of the later Stuart and Jacobean years, is really oak carcass work veneered with walnut, the solid wood being used only for moldings and and cabriole or turn legs or feet. English walnut is really a truly native wood of Persia and Hindustan and appears to have been first planted in England at Wilton Park by the Earl of Pembroke, Pembroke and Montgomery sometime during the middle of the 16th century. The wood had been sparingly used both for furniture and for paneling early in the 17th century, but there is little doubt that the timber at this date was imported. Of the varieties known in Europe, um, we have the English, the French, the Dutch or German, the Spanish, and or the Italian, with each variety of walnut possessing market, markedly differences in texture, color, and figure. In America, there appear to be two distinct kinds, the black walnut and the curly-figured Pennsylvania walnut, which seems never to have been used outside of the state. Oak, with its open grain, makes a good bed for laying down veneer, but it is harsh for delicate carving in great detail. The well-known restoration chairs, however, were often made from the older, older wood. It is only from the more ornate examples that walnut was ever used. This, however, was the practice for a short time only. The new wood soon inaugurated a rapid development in style, and shortly after 1670, we find details from Spain, Portugal, France, and the Low Countries in chair models, all introduced in a marked and original manner. 
the Spanish curled foot and bow stretcher, the Portuguese bulb, which develops rapidly into the inverted cup, the French palmet or palmer's shell, and the Flemish C and S scrolls are all found often in the same example. It is exceedingly difficult to summarize the furniture of any given period without being inaccurate, by reason of omission rather than by actual false statement. A full inquiry would and should take cognizance of every model which has been made at any stated time, and then, after eliminating the sporadic, which would only confuse an issue, the remainder would have to be taken into account in arriving at any decision, no matter how many preconceived notions were upset by doing so. In all these investigations, the easy road is always dangerous or deceiving. 17th century makers of furniture did not consider difficulties of 20th century investigators or writers, possibly for the same reason as the man who declined to have any regard for posterity on the plea that posterity has never done anything for him. How sad is this? We have to seek for broad and general rules, with certain large exceptions, of course. But we have to be sure that the exception is not the rule. One can can prove anything by segregation, as pointed out before in these... uh, and these dissertations we're putting out now. So if we accept chairs for the moment and concentrate on the oak lacquer, it may be fairly stated that the general fashion from 1670 to 1695 was for box-like pieces, enriched only with figured veneer, inlay, or lacquer. In the detail moldings, alone with a significant indication of the influence of architects, in these late 17th century pieces. Classical sections are almost unknown in Jacobean or Stuart oak, which was obviously joiner designed. They give to the walnut a refined appearance which is absent in the oak. And this is especially noticed in high grade, long case clocks of this period. Many of these could not have been designed by the cabinet makers of the period even those of Dutch extraction, as so many were during the last years of the 17th century. There is little doubt that much, if not at all, of the inspiration of these early walnut pieces of furniture came directly from the Low Countries. Charles II had been brought back from exile in Holland, and it was more than probable that many Dutchmen and Flemings came with him. It is difficult to imagine that English cabinet makers would turn to an entirely new manner and a new method, which inasmuch is more important, merely because a new king had ascended to the throne. Even then, had they adopted the low country style as a complement to the country which had afforded asylum to the English king, how can we account for the Spanish and Portuguese details being used at the same time. When we recollect that Catherine of Braganza was the consort of Charles II, and that designers of the penciler would be encouraged in England, in consequence of this alliance, 
the mystery begins to clear up a bit. So we have to look also for new types of pieces which are original in purpose as well in design. From such pieces we gain invaluable knowledge. Thus, an Elizabethan wardrobe, a James I daybed, or a Queen Anne sideboard are all impossible. Neither the wardrobe, the daybed, nor the sideboard existed. So as an article of furniture at these respective periods, there are cupboards, settles, and dressers, but these are not the same. To assume otherwise would be to confuse prototypes with the descendant. Subject to slight exceptions, the spiral twist in turning belongs to the restoration period. Prior to that date, the twisting had been done by hand, but after 1660, the slide rest comes into use and adjunct to the lathe. The cabinet on stand with doors and with drawers behind the design chair known as the daybed and fixed upholstery, which is ignoring examples at Knoll Park, which are distinctively in advance of their period. And all are either of late steward inception or else they become general in them, whereas they are exceedingly rare before. On a similar basis, the cabriole leg marks the dawn of the 18th century in England. Although this feature is embryonic in form at that time, exists in the orange period. To trace the development of English furniture during the years from 1660 until nearly 1700, it is necessary to make certain divisions and to deal with each separately. Plain walnut, marquetry, lacquer, and lastly, chairs, stools, settees, and similar pieces are not only distinct from each other in design evolution, but they also involve separate trades and processes and therefore demand individual treatment. There is some kind of overlapping within each, which is inevitable. Thus, the chairmaker often makes tables in similar small articles, and both marquetry and lacquer are sometimes mere added decoration, as distinct from pieces specifically designed and made for such work. These bridge pieces must be ignored in the present inquiry, but we must always bear in mind that these really do exist, and in certain uh, instances they may acquire a considerable importance by being um, such low production. So, so in the 42 years from the accession of Charles II to that of Anne, the craft of the chairmaker was the most advanced in design in method, and in rapidity of evolution. Fashion succeeded each other, often within the space of a few years, and we get several distinctive types given in, in just four years' reign of James II. Now, the, the Netherlands influence should predominate under the, his successor. William and Orange, one can only readily understand, but actually, these foreign influences are even more marked Market in the reign of the last of the Stuarts. The typical restoration chair with twisted leg and balusters, carved cresting, front stretcher, and cane seat back is too well known to need extensive illustrations. The first change 
is, is the introduction of the Flemish curves, the C and S scrolls. As with the new motives in the early models, these Flemish curves are introduced wherever possible. But in those slightly later dates, they are used more sparingly and occasional details. The second stage is the progression in of which is the stretcher. Instead of being tendon between the front legs, it is placed lower down between the cross rails, which tie in the front and back legs together. In the third stage, the entire stretcher is placed flat, uniting all four legs in the form of a wavy X. This again disappears in the early days of Anne, if not somewhat before, being replaced by simple turn rails until about 1710. The stretcher is abolished entirely from fashionable chairs and is never again found associated with the cabriole leg. Chippendales reintroduces it in his square leg models, and Heppelwhite follows him with his tapered leg, which is so general with his chairs. This is anticipatory, however. So between lacquer and marquetry, there, there are the basic differences. The form is purely an added decoration. The latter involves many processes which demand some explanation. Lacquer also is not evolutionary good and bad work, as were all, were, all this was done in all the periods, say from 1670 to 1740, the period of true lacquer work in England. And there are no reliable indications of date in the work itself although the design of the pieces which are lacquered may give some imperfect indication. Marquetry, on the other hand, does, does not evolve in a certain defined way, and in addition to the actual methods employed, both in the cutting and in the laying, there are some significant indications of period which will be considered later. It is well to remain, however, that lacquer and marquetry run side by side, plain walnut veneered pieces, although separate considerations of each, which is obligatory in any book arrived on a systematic plan, because this may give you a contrary idea. It is only at the very close of the 17th century that walnut wall furniture, i.e., for example, chairs, tables, and the like, which for convenience may be called floor furniture, begins to take place on a definite um, on a <coughs> definite design form. So this is noticeable in the shaping of pediments and cornices, the glazing and um, mounting of doors, and the use of shape moldings. There are earlier exceptions to this, of course, but they are very rare. The later Jacobean and the Orange periods were often the age of sporadic production and and it is quite difficult and unwise to postulate as to what was or what was not being made during those years. In addition, to attempt to differentiate, differentiate between the work of an English cabinet maker trained by a foreigner, that of a foreigner workman domiciled in England, or say, of a Dutch artisan working on the order of an English maker, such as Thomas Tompion, with his clock cases. In the English matter, and possibly when with English timber, involves an assumption of knowledge which no one can possibly possess 
at the present day. So we get a clean line, more or less, with the, with the, drawn, the dawn of the 18th century, especially in the instance of the complete smooth cabriolet. But the subject of the latter, walnut furniture, must be deferred to a latter uh, episode. This is a gap between the work of the marquetry cutter, which demands attention at some length, and a considerable technical detail before the Queen Anne and early Georgian walnut can be reached. Um, Thanks for listening. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist.